You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Now, welcome everyone to another edition of the Pipeline Podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff here with Jim Catlis and Jonathan Mayo. We're going to talk postseason. We're down to the final four teams. We'll talk about some rookies who continue to play big roles in this postseason, uh, including one Ian Anderson of the Braves. Uh, Rays scout James Bonici is going to join us to talk about the signing of Mike Brasso. Not a rookie, but a very interesting story uh, that Jim Callis uh, has detailed uh, about uh, the signing of Mike Brasso, who came up huge for the Rays in the division series. Uh, the 2021 draft order is now set. We'll dig into that, and we will answer your questions as well. Uh, guys, Jim, welcome back. You were on a, uh, a luxurious vacation last week. Uh, while you were away... We did take the opportunity uh, to attack you while you were defenseless. Since Jim's not here to defend himself, let's talk about uh, last week we made our postseason picks. And uh, anytime you can defeat Callus in anything, I think you have to gloat about it. Through the first round, Jim is in last place. And looking ahead, it doesn't look like he's got much of a chance to win. He missed on five of his eight wild card series picks. I'm curious, you know, Mike, as the outside observer, how he can uh, break down just how poorly Jim did. <laughs> I, was, I was about to say, I, I think we should continue talking about how Jim finished dead last year and you know, five of his picks were wrong. So um, I, I, don't, I don't think we should ever lose sight of that, just even when we're doing future contests drafts you know all, all the stuff that we do we'll, we'll we'll come back to this i'm not gonna we'll, uh, we'll put this part out and just i'm gonna send it to him like every day well there we go we, we did in fact clip it out and now jonathan you just need to, to send it to jim every yeah, day I need to get on that i've been a little delinquent uh but uh i, I like jim to defend yourself well i mean it's i don't know what i can say to defend myself i think i had what indians and Twins over the Indians in the ALCS, and that's obviously uh, got wiped out pretty quick. I know I had the – I think I had the Dodgers winning it all. I think I had, what, the Marlins beating the Braves? And I think I had the Rays winning in the first round. Those were probably the three first-round series I got correct. Yeah, you got got the Rays, uh, Dodgers, and Padres. I thought I picked the Marlins to beat the Cubs. Um, You did not. Okay. I, I don't remember that, but that's fine. But yeah, so it's, uh, well, I was doing okay in the National League for a little bit, I guess. So, yeah, you, uh, you had the Dodgers over the Indians. Um, you had the Reds going to the NLCS, which I think uh, you had stated at the time that you thought their pitching was going to. Uh, <laughs> I was right about their pitching. Come on, their pitching was good. I just, I just forgot you have to score some, you have to score actual runs to uh, advance in the postseason. So that was, that was the tough part. I, I'd forgotten about that, uh, that part of it, but what, I mean, they pitched, what was it? 22 innings and, and gave up six runs. Um, Yeah. I would have been fine with that. Well, something that I hope you have not forgotten is the fact that you insisted on a, very specific monetary amount that we're betting. Venmo me $25,000 and then I'll, I'll pay it out to the winner uh, at the end. 25,000, 25,000. Nobody Venmoed me the money though. So I, I don't know what to tell you guys. Cause I think we talked about a hundred thousand up front. So to, you guys didn't Venmo me the money. So opportunity lost, I guess. I don't know what to tell you. I don't, I don't think there was a statute of limitations there on that. No, you didn't, you didn't say Venmo me the money by this date. I think it's That's standard you. betting procedure. You have to put the money aside at the beginning of the bet. You don't get to decide you're gonna you're gonna put the money up after you're you're faring well. So I don't know what to tell you. Jim is now talking about betting on baseball uh, and their official rules on a which on is legal. No, podcast. it's legal. So it's been it's been nice working Rafting, with you, baby. We've got partners. We've got you know official partners. You know, but Jonathan, I, I will if you still want to put in your twenty five thousand for Mickey Moniak versus Zach McKinstry. 
No, you, you can't. Uh, so you can't do that. This is a classic pivot. Uh, like, what are you? Ta- you taking you know debate advice from certain people? That has nothing to do with what we're talking about right now. We're not talking about Mickey Moniak versus Zach McKinstry. No, I'm that just is saying entirely, if you want to click the that is, you are com- trying to completely deflect the conversation from pointing out that you failed. No, I'm not. Well, no, I well that I I did had a bad postseason, but I would just say if you go to to, to Vegas, Jonathan, you don't get to say, hey, I'd like to make this bet. I'll come back and bring you the money three days from now if it's working out for me. I so, didn't realize you were. I, a, I, I didn't realize you were a bookie, Jim. I thought this was a a, a wager among friends. That, well, if you we're know, doing twenty five thousand a pop, and you, I mean, don't you think? Uh, like, I, I'm I'm making book right there. So I have to I have to tell you, based, based on your attitude now, I don't I don't I wouldn't trust you with my twenty five thousand dollars. So well, you didn't. It. You didn't trust me. So the, the that, well, I think I think the the way that you've gotten so defensive so quickly, uh, you know, I think you would have been like, you know what, forget this. I'm 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 going home. I'm not even defend. I I I, I did not pick well. I, I admit that. I'm not defending that. But if you don't put the if you if you don't put the money down at the front of the bet, you're you're out of luck. So I, I don't think you're getting twenty five thousand dollars. So sorry. All right, fine. I will I will just really bank on the satisfaction of beating you. So, and, and so we, we've devolved into a gambling podcast now. Jonathan <laughs> will give you his lock of the week coming up at the end of the show. So I make sure you not. listen to the whole podcast. This, this is making me very uncomfortable. All right, moving right along. Thank you. Let, let's talk. Let's talk postseason. Um, we continue to see a number of rookies playing a big role uh, as we're down to the final four teams, specifically with pitchers, um, several starters. Uh, Ian Anderson, Kyle Wright for the Braves, uh, Urquidy starting for the Astros. I guess it's possible we'll see May or Gonsolin for the Dodgers in a starting role. Um, relievers, Gratterall, May, Gonzalez for the Dodgers, Javier and Paredes for the Astros, uh, Fairbanks, Ryan Thompson for the Rays. Uh, almost every team represented by a, a slew of rookies as is, does this strike you as an unusual number of rookies who are playing very significant roles in the postseason? Well, I mean, we talked about, I think, going into the postseason. I think it's just another offshoot of, of this being an unusual year. You've got yeah. larger rosters than usual, so there's more pitchers on the rosters. To get the World Series in the window that Fox wanted it, we're having no off days in the preliminary rounds of the playoffs. There's an extra round. So there's just a need for more pitching. Plus, you know, we saw – more pitchers than usual get hurt for over a, a 60 day period. So I just think there's, there's, there's so much more opportunity now. I mean, like, you know, you look at these teams, you know, whoever advances to the world series is going to have rookies in key roles. Um, you know, maybe the Rays a little bit less, but everybody else is probably going to use rookie starters in the World Series. And, you know, Peter Fairbanks has been one of the best relievers for the Rays. I, I mean, wh- whoever advances is going to have to get not just use rookies, but get big performances out of them. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it's the the nature of what the season has, has, has brought. And, you know, you know, overall, and we've talked about this I've, how many times, just that the game is skewed younger and and – you know, even competing teams are, are valuing prospects to an extent and, and giving opportunities to prospects. Uh, so I think that opened the door for what was necessary this year. You know, the teams didn't have a choice, uh, you know, but, you know, you look at the at the teams that have, uh, you know, done well. I mean, the, the Astros are probably the outlier, but the other three teams all have really, really strong farm systems. So I think this is just a, an option of that as well. The uh, Dodgers, in particular, with Gratterall, who's been fantastic, May, who's just filthy every time you see him, uh, Gonzalez, who's very good. And we we haven't even, we haven't even seen Gonsolin yet, have we? I thought he pitched really. It's like it's it, it was hard keeping track when we had so many games in in the past round. You're correct. He's not pitching. I, I thought we'd seen him in relief. And it's weird, too, because the, the, the starters, especially with, with no off days in these series, seem to be so fluid. Uh, you know, you, you don't really know who's going to start when. And then even when teams quasi-announce their plans, they're, they're subject to change. But, yes, we, we, you are correct, Jason. We have not seen Tony Gonsolin, who was, you know, one of the best you know, rookie starters 
in baseball during the regular season. I'm sure we'll see him before the, the Braves series is out. Yeah, I think that may have just been a, a, a matter of how the how the different series went, you know, and he was probably would have been used in, you know, game three of the wild card series or game four of the division series. Uh, you know, the Dodgers had their pitching probably for, you know, fairly aligned, even if he was piggybacking or pitching in relief, or maybe they were even thinking of him as as that next starter up and they just haven't needed him yet. It is strange for a guy who was <clears throat> arguably their their best pitcher down the stretch and they have not used him at all in, in this postseason. It's really hurt them, uh, by the way. Uh, I mean, I guess outside of, of game one against the Braves, but uh, overall they, they haven't needed him uh, until now. So I, I agree with Jim. I think we will see him against the Braves at, at some point, and I think he will play a, an integral role in, in, in helping them move on if they do. So among hitters, rookie hitters in the postseason, really the only rookie remaining who's done much of anything, and he's done a lot of everything, uh, is Randy Rosarina, who we've we've talked about at length over the past couple of podcasts, I think, because he has been uh, so hot, and he just continues to mash. And um, just, Jim, I, I know you and I have talked about this on the side a little bit, but He's just been absolutely feasting on fastballs, and I, I can't for the life of me understand why anyone would throw him a fastball at this point. No, I, I'm with you. I mean, you, you brought this up, I th- and I think, like, the next at-bat I watched, he, like, almost fell over swinging at a breaking ball. Um, and, and, and you're right. I mean, it's – I mean, we're oversimplifying it a little bit, but it seems like literally every time he gets a fastball – he crushes it, and every time he gets a, a breaking ball, he tries to crush it and swings and misses. But yeah, it's it's been pretty crazy, you know, following along, you know, his progress. You know, I mean, I mean, it literally seems like anytime he gets a fastball to hit, he crushes it, and then everybody's like, "Oh my gosh, where's this coming from?" So you would you would think they would mix it up a little bit more. And you know, I'm working on a story just starting to work on a story where we're, we're ranking in order the best postseason rookie performances of all time and as we record this on Tuesday morning his postseason ops this year is 1359 he's got four homers the rookie postseason home run record is I believe it's six by Evan Longoria in 2008 the rookie ops record minimum say 15 at bats is 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 Jorge Soler at seventeen oh five, but he he's got the right now he's got the third most homers and the fourth highest ops for a rookie in a single postseason. Yeah, we're we're comparing him to to rookies there. But if you look at just this postseason and compare him to every hitter, he leads all postseason hitters in hits and total bases. Um, and getting back to the to the him feasting on fastballs. You know, this is happening in the postseason now, but if you look at the regular season, both this year and last year, same thing. Hit all eight of his home runs off of fastballs. His batting average against fastballs this regular season was 316, slugging percentage 895. Last year, hit 444 off of fastballs, slugging percentage of 778. Against breaking balls this year, his batting average was 154. His expected batting average was 160. Slugging percentage, 154. And going back to last year, against breaking balls, uh, expected batting average of 145. Slugging percentage of 375. Uh, so this isn't, you know, this isn't something new. You know, I think they mentioned it on the, the broadcast yesterday. You know, they said yeah, that's probably the last fastball he'll see in this series, uh, which have to think that you would yeah you would think i mean listen if he starts crushing breaking balls then you know you you try to figure something out. yeah I, I forget mixing it up you know okay i know you're right conventional wisdom says you can't go throw like six straight breaking balls but until he shows that he can get timing on any of them i, I would not i would not throw him a fastball what like what is the the point you get if you get beat on a breaking ball based on what you've seen from him and i know it's not you know a huge sample size but it's not working what you're doing. Um, you know, he has, he's slowing down, you know, we should, we should, we should point out that, uh, you know, he, 
hit 500 and slugged 15, you know, 1500 in, uh, in the wild card series. And then 421, 1371 in the division series. And he's down to a measly 375 with a 1.125 OPS, uh, in two games. And he's, you know, there's some swing and miss there. Uh, so that they need to try to take advantage of, of those holes that have always been a part of his, his game and not give him the thing that he wants to see most, you know, until he shows that, that he can beat you on, on that. And he hasn't shown that yet. So uh, I'm with, I'm with you guys. Like, I don't, I don't understand why that, that hasn't already happened. All right. When we come back, we're going to discuss the rookie pitcher who has been sort of the equivalent of uh, Randy Rosarino on the offensive side. When we come back, we're going to dig into Braves rookie Ian Anderson. Hi, I'm Mike Petriello, host of MLB.com's Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Each week, myself, my co-host Matt Myers, and interesting guests from all around the baseball world dig into the most intriguing stories of the week from an analytical point of view. Catch us on MLB.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's it's it has it's it's all happened pretty pretty quickly um, to have six starts in the regular season and, and kind of be in this position now is, uh, you know, it's happened fast, but, um, you know, like I've said before, I think, uh, you know, the way that, that we were prepared in the minor leagues and in, in, in years past, uh, has kind of all culminated to this point. So, uh, I, I feel, feel prepared and, and, uh, you know, I can't give enough credit to the staff we have here for, for making me feel that way. Ian Anderson, he has been absolutely lights out so far this postseason uh, as we record this podcast he is set for a clash with Clayton Kershaw and see if he's able to continue this hot run of his and uh, he said it's it's happened fast um, talking about just a handful of major league starts coming into this postseason uh, first round draft pick in 2016 number three overall uh, but Jonathan not uh not the kind, not not the kind of guy that going into that draft uh, looked like he was going to be at the top of that list, right? No, uh, you know, absolutely not. Uh, he was always well thought of. Uh, you know, had performed well in the summer showcase circuit. He was from upstate New York, and he was thin and wasn't throwing 97, 98 miles an hour. Uh, you know, so I think for most of the time in the lead up to the draft we thought he was probably kind of maybe more of a mid first rounder. Maybe he'd be the kind of guy that would drop a little bit. He had a Vanderbilt commitment. Uh, you know, there were all those things you know, that came into play. We had him, uh, you know, I think around number 16 on our top 200. And there were, you know, several other high school pitchers we had ahead of him. Uh, I think he was sixth uh, among the high school pitchers uh, that year. Uh, Jason Groom, now Jay Groom, was actually number one overall on our board. Riley Pint was that draft class as well. And, you know, so he was not your typical, uh, not your typical guy at all to, to take that high. And, and in fact, I think the, when we f- f- heard the buzz that he was going to go number three overall, and, and kudos to Mr. Callis and myself, because our final mock draft had Ian Anderson going number three overall. It was an exciting moment. He was at the draft. A lot of people said, all right, well, they're just, you know, they're saving money uh, by making this pick. And that's true. They they signed him for two and a half million dollars under slot, and they were able to sign Joey Wentz and uh, and Kyle uh, Muller, a couple of high school right-handers. They got Bryce, uh, I'm sorry, left-handers. They got Bryce Wilson, a high school right-hander, who was actually the, the first guy from that draft class to reach the big leagues. Uh, so they, they were able to manipulate the you know, the, the bonus system uh, by taking Ian Anderson. But that, that only tells a very small part of the story. They were on Ian Anderson from, from the, from the get go. They loved him over the summer. Their area scout was Greg Morehart. He now scouts for the, for the Boston Red Sox. And the, really interesting thing about Greg Morehart, uh, be before, he was responsible for the Braves taking in Anderson 
was he was the Angels area scout in New Jersey in 2009 and was a driving influence behind their decision in taking Mike Trout. So you have to kind of take that into account because that's part of his track record that, you know, he believes strongly in a player that not a lot of people in the industry were on as highly and look how it played out. Uh, And that certainly came into consideration for Brian Bridges, who was in his second draft as the scouting director. He already had a propensity for high school pitching. He took Colby Allard in the middle of the first round and then Mike Soroka at the end of the first round and Soroka was number 60 on our list. So he, he clearly was willing to kind of go off the, the grid and, and go with the guy he, he believed in as a, as a high school arm. So all this came into play and Greg Moorhart and Brian Bridges and Roy Clark, who had been a longtime scouting director and was a special assistant to the GM really, really believed in Ian Anderson. And, uh, you know, so they, they needed to, uh, you know, they, they, they needed to convince the, the higher ups, but they were able to do so. And now we're seeing the, the, the results uh, of that. I was going to say two things that I think are, are interesting about this that, that happen a lot. One, you know, in terms of guy, high school right-handers in particular, or high school pitchers going that high, you know, to, we, we say this all the time, teams are skittish of that demographic. And especially in that year, yep. you know, as Jonathan pointed out, the, the strength of that draft was high school pitching. Well, you look at, you know, we had six of our top, we had Ian Anderson 13th on our list. Six of the top 13 players on our list that year were high school pitchers. Jay Grooms had injury problems, has barely pitched. Riley Pines had control problems. Neither of those guys is particularly close to the big leagues. Braxton Garrett, who I thought was a great bet to stay healthy, had Tommy John surgery. Matt Manning has probably had the best uninterrupted career of any of them. Forrest Whitley at one point was the best pitching prospect in baseball, but one thing or another happens to him. He, he doesn't stay on the mound very much. And Ian Anderson was six. There's, there's always going to be trepidation with those guys. And oftentimes a guy like Ian Anderson will go at the top of the second round instead of the top of the first. And then the, the other thing that's really interesting to me is, you know, every year this comes up and I just think fans misunderstand the way teams work in the draft is when you see Carlos Correa go number one or Ian Anderson go number three, or Kyle Schwarber to go number four, three prime examples. Oh, the team's saving money, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's, that's a budget pick. Every year there's a rumor that, you know, especially the team that's picking number one, oh, they're going to take some guy who's 20th on the draft list and cut a big deal and then crush the draft. Teams don't sacrifice talent at the top of the draft. When the, when the Astros took Correa number one, they thought – I still think they would have taken Mark Appel if Appel was signable. But they liked Cray a lot. They, it wasn't like they were they were reaching for a guy. Cray's agent kind of screwed up his his market because he probably would have gone number two to the Twins if Buxton had gone number one. And that's why they got a good deal and they were able to get our players they liked, but they loved Correa. When the Cubs took Schwarber at four, they used his money to get some, some pitching later, the, the best of which was probably Dylan Cease. But again, they loved Kyle Schwarber. They loved, liked him as a legitimate number four pick. And when Jonathan's story come, comes out and, and people read it, it's the same thing with Ian Anderson. It was great that they were able to save money on Ian Anderson and get Kyle Muller and Bryce Wilson and, and Joey Wentz, who we had ranked you know, right behind those guys, right, right behind um, Anderson on our list. But they didn't take Ian Anderson to save money. They took Ian Anderson because they loved him. They understood his market, and they were able to kind of have their cake and eat it too. Right. Um, but, but it's always, like you said, Jonathan, as you point out, like there was this thought that like, oh, they're just looking to save money. No. They, I, I don't think, I mean, yes, saving money was great and they got some other arms, but they wouldn't have done that if they didn't believe in Ian Anderson as that type of guy. And, you know, the, the funny thing is, I mean, we're, it's only four years out, so the, the draft can change. I mean, it, we're just starting to get a read on how good the players are. But but that draft was like, and maybe it's because there was so much high school pitching and high school pitching is, is uncertain, but that draft has not, to this point, played out anywhere near what you'd think. I mean, right now the top eight players – in terms of big league production in that draft, none of them were first rounders. The, the best player to come out of the draft was Shane Bieber so far, if you're just going off of war. And tied for second are Pete Alonso and Zach Gallen, and even Tommy Edmonds fourth. I mean, and, and you're talking fourth round, second round, third round, sixth round. It, it's, it's just been a very unusual draft. You know, and on the high school side, those guys are just getting going. I mean, the best high school player so far has been Bo Bichette, who went in the second round and he had kind of a 
I don't know if the best way, but aggressive swing. And there were maybe some questions like, oh, is that really going to play in pro ball? And Bo Bichette has just been this tremendously great young hitter. So, well, that's, um, and, and, and high school hitting is less of a risk. You, you know, you, you, you sort of uh, alluded to, to that. You know, I think you have a draft class where this, the perceived strength is high school pitching. It only stands to reason that, I mean, one, some of those guys are not going to hit because, you know, because there's risk of injuries that you, you point out. And two, it's going to, it might, take longer um, for, for guys to get there. You know, Ian Anderson <clears throat> hasn't had injury issues as a, as a professional. Uh, he had some command issues uh, for, for a bit as he moved up, uh, but it's had a fairly, uh, you know, rapid progression is maybe not right, but he's only 22. Uh, and, you know, and he's healthy. You know, so uh, that's why you need to wait longer, especially on a draft class like this with so much good high school pitching to see what happens. Uh, but it's funny that, you know, Ian Anderson, and there were some injury concerns. <clears throat> he got sick his spring of his senior year. And I think that threw some people off of him. He he has, as you watch him now, uh, kind of unique over the top delivery that makes some scouts cringe a little bit. But he does it in such a free and easy way that the Braves weren't deterred by by that, and and yet he you know he hasn't been hurt while some of the other guys that you mentioned in that in that class have have had some injury and or command issues or and you know, Riley Pines had had both of those things, uh, but you know the Braves never had anyone else ahead of them. And as you know, in talking to to Greg Morehart for the the story. You know, they did, you know, they and, and Brian Bridges, they did due diligence. They looked at a bunch of other players, you know, the college bats, which were you know, the sort of the safer pick. They didn't like any of them. Uh, the, the two guys that went ahead of Ian Anderson in that draft were Mickey Moniak and Nick Senzel. They liked Ian Anderson better than both of them, uh, you know. And, you know, I actually asked Brian Bridges that question, um, you know, well, what if you had picked number one? Would you would you have taken Ian Anderson knowing that's never happened? Uh, you know, a high school right-hander has never gone number one overall. Uh, you know, you would have had to convince the the powers that be. Uh, but, you know, Brian Bridges, largely because he really trusted in Greg Moorhart's judgment, said, you would have had a hard time talking me off of it. So it would have been interesting. Obviously, it's not what happened. But they treated that as having the number one pick. And they got the guy who was at the top of their board from the end of the summer all the way through. Well, I liked in your story too, where you talked about how when they were kind of kicking this around, that Paul Snyder, who's legendary scout, you know, was one of the guys along with Bobby Cox who who really built that 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 you know Braves team that won you know about a thousand division titles in a row. Um, you know, and also the guy who kind of coined, you know, I, I've quoted this several times. I remember Paul telling me when I start off at Baseball America, the, the old, it need, you know, you need 10 good, 10 pitching prospects to find two good ones. But Paul Snyder spoke when they were talking and kicking this around and said, look, it, it's guys like Ian Anderson. We built this organization on. And I always admire conviction. You, you have to have, I mean, you have to have scouting acumen. You have to work real hard to make good picks, but you have to have conviction too. And if you believe in something, you should you should pursue that. If you think Ian Anderson's the best guy, even though he's a high school right-hander and other guys don't agree with it, pick Ian Anderson. And they did, and, and it paid off. Now, I, I, you know, obviously, if, if you go with conviction and you're wrong a lot, you're going to lose your job. But, you know, there, there's no worse feeling if you're a scout to believe in a player and talk yourself out of them and then wind that guy, watch that guy wind up becoming a productive big leaguer or a star. So, I mean, I applaud, I applaud the Braves for having the conviction to say, you know what, you know, we, we like this guy who cares what anybody else thinks we're going to take him at number three. Ian Anderson's first two starts in this postseason, 11 and two thirds innings, five hits, three walks, no runs, 17 strikeouts. And guys, uh, I mean, what an exciting time for the Braves right now, their rotation, this very young rotation really uh, shaping up to be potentially something special for, for years down the road. Uh, Kyle Wright uh, also threw six shutout innings in his uh, only postseason start so far. And then Max Fried uh, has started three games and posted a 2.65 ERA. And I think it's always fun for us as well to watch uh, a farm system, a really good farm system, blossom into uh, a good 
to great major league team, which which happens so frequently. Well, and you know, the, I'll let you go in a second, John. Let's just see, all three of those guys were top six overall picks that you just cited. You know, Kyle Wright figured something out after a dreadful start to his, his big league career. He figured something out in the, the season, but it, it's interesting. I, I just people, you know, again, high school pitching scares people in the draft, but you can't. Um, you can't run away from these guys. I guess, I guess Max Fried was, it was a seventh overall pick, but the point is, you know, a lot of teams would say, Oh, you can't take a high school pitcher high in the draft. Well, if you look at the Braves, they, they traded for Max Fried. They didn't draft him. They took Ian Anderson number three. And, and those are their two best starters right now. And they're up one, one Oh, in the, in the national league championship series. So um, again, I mean, I, I, one of the things I believe of totally in the draft is you can have, philosophies and believe in, in certain things, but you can't just have absolutes. You've got to, you've got to consider each guy on a case by case basis. And you might be scared of high school pitching, but there's going to be times when high school pitchers are the best pick. I mean, the Dodgers, I mean, we talked about Clayton Kershaw a number of times. Clayton Kershaw was what the, the sixth overall pick in the draft too. Like what if the Dodgers had said, Oh, can't take, you know, can't take a high school pitcher that high, you know, got to run away from him. Or he was seventh overall. I keep moving these guys up a spot, but you know, again, yeah, high school pitchers are scary, but there are some really good ones who go high in the draft. Yeah, it's one of the things that um, you know that, that Greg Morrow was saying is like it, you know teams or scouts who have this blanket you know thing where it's like, well, high school pitching, oh, you can't do that. Uh, you are are too often missing the boat. You have to take things individually. You know, if, you know, looking back again at Ian Anderson, you know, he was a high school pitcher. He was from upstate New York. You know, there 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 are lots of things that would make you say no you know i don't i don't think so he wasn't you know completely lighting up the radar gun uh which you know now you know has become too important i think in, in the evaluation of, of young pitching and we're and we're you know, you're talking about the young brave staff and, and they're doing this without mike soroka who got hurt now of course soroka doesn't get hurt maybe we're not talking about ian anderson right now but you know that was another instance of the braves willingness to uh, you know, to go with a high school arm way ahead of where the industry had him. Granted, it was the end of the first round, but it was still way ahead of where most people had Sorokin. And some of that, I think, has to do, and I think probably the, you know, the, the Dodgers might, you know, say the same, is you have to have faith in your, in your player development staff. And at the time, the Braves had, uh, you know, Dom Chidi and Dave Wallace, uh, basically dealing with with player development and pitching development and i think what brian bridges this didn't even make it into the in the story in the end said it's like that was like 85 combined years of experience in developing pitchers so when you're thinking about like i'm going to go against the grain here and take a high school right-hander in the in the top three there's only been six that have gone in the top three since 2000 uh and there have been some cautionary tales that haven't gone so well there you have to have faith that you're going to hand this player who you really believe in off to people who are going to then help him get to where you think he can go if you don't have that faith then maybe you start listening to that oh i shouldn't take a high school right-hander this high but i think with the braves certainly and you know and in the case with the with the dodgers as well uh when you mentioned Clayton Kershaw, there was a belief that their player development staff knew what you needed to do to turn those high school pitchers into the stars that they are capable of becoming. So at this end of the spectrum, a really interesting story on the scouting and drafting of the number three overall draft pick. Uh, when we come back, we're going to have a, another really interesting scouting story and uh, the signing of a non-drafted free agent who has played a big role in this uh, postseason as well. When we come back, we will hear from Ray Scout James Bonici, who uh, signed Mike Barrasso. Hi, I'm Mike Petriello, host of MLB.com's Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Each week, myself, my co-host Matt Myers, and interesting guests from all around the baseball world dig into the most intriguing stories of the week from an analytical point of view. Catch us on MLB.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So a right-handed hitter digging on in against Chapman here. 
The first pitch on its way. Look out over his head. Are you kidding me? And by the way, that pitch was 101. Well, and the Rays have to start. Re- re- I mean, I hate using the word retaliating, but you got to answer stuff like that. Here in October. I mean, a 1-1 game and a deciding game where there's going to be a last at bat win. 2-2 two two to Brasso. Swing and a foul. A pitch. Swing and a foul to the right side at 99. Out of play. Brasso hanging in there tough. 2-2 two two the count. The hold and the pitch on the way. Inside. That was close. And it's 3-2. and 101. A full count to Brasso. He's ready and throws. Swing and a foul. And Brasso just got a piece at 99 to stay alive. Brasso digs back in. And another 3-2 pitch due to him. Here it is. Swing and a long drive. Deep to left field. Going back is Gardner. All the way to the wall. It's gone! A home run for Mike Brasso. The Rays have taken a 2-1 lead and sweet justice in San Diego. Jim Callis from MLB Pipeline here with James Benici of the Rays. He's an area scout with Tampa Bay. And he's in the news because one of the players he signed years a few years ago as a non-drafted free agent is definitely in the news. Mike Brasso, big series-winning home run against the Yankees in the AL Division Series. Pretty incredible. As a, as a fan and as a scout, James, what was it like for you just watching that at bat? I mean, you're invested on the team level. You're invested on the personal level. He goes down 0-2. It's a 10-pitch at bat. There's history between them. What was that like to watch just from your perspective? It was incredible. I it was it was something surreal. I, when he got down 0-2, I'm like, oh, here comes the high fastball. They got him the night before, and I have got to give it to him uh, from uh, you know signing him to seeing him now. His plate discipline is fantastic because the next couple of pitches that he laid off were pretty tough to lay off of, and 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 for him to work the count to even and to foul off a couple of good pitches, uh, I thought it was just. Uh, surreal and incredible because I, I was, I couldn't believe that he did it, to be honest. I just was like, this is, you know, you're, you're, you're got the white knuckles, you're vested in the team, you're vested in a game that's that, that high leverage. And he, he came through. It was unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. You've been with the Rays for a while. So was that the most excited you've ever been? Would go into the world series in 2008, maybe top that? I mean, how does that rank with your moments in baseball? that's probably the number one. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't get any better. Somebody that you'd signed, uh, whether it's non-drafted or or a drafted player uh, in order to put the major league team into the next round with that home run is, is far, uh, far and away the, the most I've been invested. Uh, I think I had Andy Sonnenstein on the team in 2008 uh, when we won it, but this was definitely uh, a top that. How many texts of congratulations did you get? after he hit the home run over the next day or so. Yeah, I got, uh, I got plenty. That was great. I mean, the, the, our whole, our whole organization, a lot of guys reached out, which was fantastic. I mean, but I've been there 20 years. We're a pretty tight knit group. So uh, if it were somebody else's player, we'd all be doing the same thing. We got a bunch of great people that work for us. And I think, I, I want to say, I think you've signed six big leaguers, seven yep. big leaguers, six. Yep. And it, what's funny is I was looking at it and two of them, or two-way players. You, you, you were associated with Brendan McKay, number four overall pick a couple of years ago at Louisville. Jake Cronenworth, who obviously had a breakout year this year. And, and I, I don't know how good a scout I am, James, but I thought we, – we wrote I wrote up Cronenworth as a pitcher coming out of Michigan. And I will admit, I liked Brendan McKay both ways because how could you not? I liked him a little bit better as a hitter coming out of Louisville. When you turn in reports on those guys – did you turn in reports both ways and which way did you prefer those guys? Did you call well, them Brendan, the right way? <laughs> I went with you. I thought Brendan McKay was definitely a hitter first for me. Uh, and he was going to be a frontline starter as well, but I just loved the bat, the ease of which he got the bat there. Um, and he was just, he was, he was so confident on the mound. It was just for me, I've always, I was a hitter. So it's easier for me to scout hitting, I think than it is pitching. And I just thought his bat worked better maybe. Uh, but it was neck and neck for me. He was obviously the top player in uh, in that draft year. Uh, Jake, I did not turn in as a pitcher. I um, I didn't see it. Um, I, I turned him in as a position guy. I saw it when he was a freshman at Michigan uh, at the Big Ten tournament. I thought he he was every bit as good as Kyle Schwarber, maybe not power wise, 
but I thought his bat played as well as Kyle Schwarber, uh, as Schwarber was a junior that year, and he, or maybe a sophomore, uh, I forget, maybe that was Schwarber's draft year, but uh, I thought Cronenworth's bat was every bit as good as, as Kyle's was, and, um, you know, it was a little difficult because the next year he wasn't as strong, Jacob wasn't, and then I think he got pigeonholed at first base at Michigan, at Michigan his first, his junior year, so you know, as scouts, if they're not playing up the middle, right, if they're not playing shortstop, center field, catching second base, and they're pigeonholed at first base, and you're like, well, you know, here's Cronenworth at first base, and, you know, what are you going to do with that? But, you know, I'll give it to you. That was, a, that was just not me. That was our entire our uh, organization that got Jake, because that was uh, Fred Repke and Bobby Heck. They saw him at the Big Ten tournament. Uh, they saw what I saw with the bat, and, you know, the rest is history for him. Well, so it could wind up being a pretty nice year for you, James. You could have a, a playoff hero and possibly the National League Rookie of the Year. Getting back to Mike, when did you first see him? I know he was a part of a pretty good Indiana high school program, not a big-time prospect coming out of high school in 2012. He spent four years at Oakland. For our listeners who don't know much about Oakland University, but they have players every couple of years. It's a decent program. It's, it's The Horizon League is probably below the mid-major league, like the Mid-America Conference. It's more of a probably a third tier conference. It's a small conference, but they do have decent players. When did he first catch your eye? And were you scouting Oakland that day or were you actually scouting the opponent when you saw him? Well, I had, I saw him uh, as his junior year at scout day and John Mustachio is the head coach there at the time. And, you know, I lived in, I, I grew up in Rochester, Michigan. My mom worked at Oakland university. So I was real, I'm familiar with that area. So, you know, those were a lot of home games for me, just stepping in there for a couple innings and stepping out. And on scout day that day, he just kept, you know, he told not, not, not only me, I think all the scouts is like, Hey, keep an eye on Brasso. You know, he's really a good player. Uh, and you know, he ran the 60 fine. I remember it was like six, eight, it was average. You know, he was just a good college player. And at that, you know, he's five, nine, maybe 170 pounds. And you're, you know, in our industry, it's just like, okay, maybe next year. Uh, well, a senior year comes along and I just poke my head in there. Cause John, John just kept, pounding the table, James, you've got to come see him. You've got to stay on him. And I'm like, okay. And, and John's, you know, he's a really good guy. I like getting in there. And he matched up against Sean Murphy and there was a lot of scouts. I had already gone in there and there's a couple scouts of us that we'd gone down the line. Um, and we were all kind of in the, in the same agreements, just a good college player. And, you know, it's one of those things as a scout, tough to sink your teeth into like, Oh, you know, he's five, nine, he runs average. He throws average. What is he, you know, what are the, his big separating tools that can put him? And it, you know, at, at, I, I'll have to admit, there really weren't any separating tools for me from Mike, uh, but he had just a really solid game across the board. And, and, and that's kind of what stuck out to me um, that year going into the draft. We know he didn't get drafted, but uh, our assistant scouting director at the time, Tim Stagel called me and they needed a body. And we had a couple of injuries in rookie ball. And they had said, James, you know, do you got somebody in mind? We need a body down here to fill in to play shortstop, second, third, somebody to play. And I go, I absolutely do. Uh, and now I made the call immediately to Mike and it was a no brainer for him. It really wasn't. He was, he was, he was totally ecstatic to sign and he couldn't, he was, it was just, he was really excited. Did you turn him in for the draft? Was he a guy you were angling for late? Or as you said, no, I mean, he no. had a good senior year. I mean, he, yeah. I think he led the horizon in on-base percentage. Yeah. He, he showed more power. But as you no. said, he's not a big physical guy. There's not really a plus tool. He was on, he he was on, list. He, yep, he was on that list the, after the draft players for me. And, and that's how it happened. And as you said, I mean, I, I guess, I mean, when you don't get drafted and you're a senior, you know, it, it's not like it's tough negotiations, but how – how thrilled was Mike to get that call? I mean, because, I mean, I guess, obviously, he wanted to play professional baseball. He, I guess he could have gone independent ball if, if a team hadn't come calling. But I guess in some ways, your career probably flashes before your eyes a little bit when you don't get – I mean, how long after the draft did you wind up contacting him? Was it pretty quick or it – was, It was immediately because, okay. you, know, you know, it was uh, – player development, scouting has to go through those rosters. Right. And I know on the third day, as soon as the third day had, 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 was over, I got a call that night. Okay. And, and, and Tim had called me. He's like, hey, we're going to be short on position guys at the Gulf Coast League. Do you have anybody in mind? And I called Mike. I was like, yes, I do. I, and when I called Mike, he was he was he was excited and uh, went and we signed him the next day. And he when I went to sign him, I, I'm you know expecting maybe to put him on a flight the next day to get him down there. He had already had his bags packed in his car. I had no <laughs> clue on that. They were in his trunk. He's like, well, he was he's like, well, 
aren't I leaving now? I was like, you want to go now? I was planning on flying you out to the next day. He's like, my, and so I called the, our travel agent. I flew him out later that afternoon and he got down there ASAP. He really wanted to play. He's definitely shown that. At what point or, or how early in his career did you maybe start to realize, you know what, he, he might be a big league? Because I assume when you sign him, you know, you're signing him to fill a roster hole. You like the way the kid plays. It's not, you know, the greatest profile. You're not necessarily thinking, okay, slam dunk big leaguer here I just signed. You know, but, I mean, he came into pro ball. He hit in the Gulf Coast League, which isn't too surprising as a college guy. But he went to Midwest League. He hit. He started showing power when he got to double A. At what point, how early in his career did you realize we might really have something here? This is pretty interesting. The funny thing is, I think it was after his first year. I mean, I could, he was our MVP that year in the Gulf Coast. I'm like, that's good for him. You know, at least he's going to be able to come to spring training because he'll be 23 the next year. He, he hit his way onto the Bowling Green Club. He probably wasn't initially slated to go to Bowling Green, but that spring training, he hit his way on to that Bowling Green Club and watching the reports when we get, we, we get the instructional league reports, the spring training reports, we get all the reports. When reading those reports, his, his at-bats were phenomenal. He was hitting the ball hard. He was hitting it with power. He was playing shortstop. He was playing third. He was playing, and they were really using him as a versatile uh, player. And when he made that Bowling Green Club and how he started out, I, I, I thought that he would have a chance at that time, really, that early, because he had already survived He's a non-drafted. Okay. He put that aside. All the development guys that I talked to were, loved his work ethic, loved his makeup, loved every part about him, uh, that he came to the park every day to learn and get better. Not everybody does, you know, and, and he did every day. When a guy get when he, so when he gets called up to the big leagues, do they, do you get a heads up from player development or the GM, you know, saying, Hey, James, pretty cool. We're about to call up Rosso or does he call you or maybe both? How did, how did you find out he was getting to the big leagues? And then how soon did you talk to him after that? Well, I was, uh, I was doing pro work in Midland last year, Michigan. And uh, I got a call from RJ and RJ is just like, Hey, your guy's going to get called up. I thought it might be uh, Jake Cronenworth because they're both having really good careers. I was like, Oh, wow. Okay. He's like, yeah, Mike. I was like, what? I was just floored. And he's like, hey, man, it's not out there yet. They've just flown him with the team. They may or may not activate him because I think they I think maybe Daniel, somebody may have gotten hurt. I think Daniel Robertson may have gotten hurt. And so it's it wasn't official. And you just never know. Like, OK, he's fine. They put him back on a plane, sent him back to Durham. But he actually flew him out there. And I was just like, as soon as they activate him. Yeah, I, I called him right away. I couldn't be more. I just ecstatic for the kid. He everything he's done, all the heavy lifting to get there. And what was that like when you talked to him? I mean, I mean, I got to imagine, I mean, this is a guy who three years earlier looked like his career might be over. And now he's in, I mean, he's not just in the big leagues. I mean, you guys are a contending team. I mean, you know, it, it, there's obviously a lower bar sometimes to clear if you're a hundred lost team, you know, they need bodies. But I mean, you guys are trying to win and you're, you're calling up a guy who was undrafted three years ago. Well, Bobby Heck had told me he, he went when he was there and it called out, Bobby had said that he he's faster. He's playing at a faster level in Durham that he's ready. And, and when I heard that, I'm like, wow, he's, that's, uh, he's just not a guy then. He's just not a utility guy. He's a major leaguer because if he's playing at the speed that he's playing at, then that's going to translate pretty easy to the major leagues. Um, and he did. He, he, whatever he did in the offseason to get ready for last year, uh, his speed uh, on the base pass, his speed and his infield, his quickness, his bat speed, all of that was at least a tick or two up according to Bobby, and it was ready to go. So um, when I told him that, I go, man, whatever you did this year, you've, you've done it right. He was just, he was ecstatic. He couldn't believe that he was, that, you know, he comes from a small town in Indiana, you know, and, and he was, he, he was speechless. I know I was speechless talking to him. <laughs> How much better is he as a hitter than when you we saw him at, at Oakland to what he is now? I'm, I'm, I, our development people are amazing. They flat are. Uh, his at bats that I, uh, that the clips that I've gotten through the minor leagues each year, exponentially better plate discipline, exp exponentially better. And then to see his at bats this year in the big leagues, the stuff that he lays off now or the stuff that he swings at is right on cue. And, and that's a credit to him and our, our guys in our minor league system. Our, our hitting guys are outstanding in the major leagues and minor leagues. They've, they've done some great work. His, he's always been able to hit uh, more of a gap hitter when he was in college gap to gap. Uh, and now he's, he's gap to gap as well with power and with just uh, big time bat speed.
I mean, his at-bat against Chapman was incredible. I mean, to get down 0-2 and fight and fight and fight, and then hit a 100-mile-an-hour fastball out uh, was amazing. And then, I mean, I, I guess you probably weren't surprised because you know him well, but obviously there was history with Chapman throwing 101 over his head earlier in the season. And so everybody wanted to build it as, oh, revenge. You know, Brasso got revenge. And then, you know, the, I think it was Lauren Shahadi maybe who's interviewing that. I forget who's doing the interview. I think it was Lauren was interviewing him after the game on TV. And he wouldn't have any of that. He's like, no, I was just trying to have a good at bat, hit the ball hard, put it in play. I mean, you know him better than we do. I mean, did that surprise you at all? Not at all. Most humble guy you'll meet. Really, literally, the most humble guy, the most gracious guy that you'll ever meet. Uh, and is definitely not looking to start anything with any of those guys. And and it was a professional bat. I mean, he was looking to win the, the baseball game. And I think in the playoffs, I don't anything that may have happened before that. They they just went there to try to win the baseball game and, and put on the best at bats they could against, you know, Garrett Cole, who's one of the top right handers. And then we're all this chat the best left hand in the game. You're there to try to get on base some way, somehow. And I think he said it the best. No, I'm just there to try to get on base and get a hit. How much better can this story get for Mike, do you think? I mean, he's already obviously exceeded expectations just by getting to the big leagues then being productive in the big leagues. I mean, shoot, he's even pitched four games in the big leagues. Um, now he hits a, a game-winning home run. I mean, just from watching him, I mean, is there more to come? I mean, I mean, I know you guys have a, a fairly stacked team, but, I mean, this looks like the type of guy who might be an everyday player in the right situation. You know, yeah, I don't think the story's written uh, all the way written for him. He's going to have a, a fantastic major league career. He really is. He's, um, he's one of those guys that's in the clubhouse all the time early. He's a glue guy. He plays multiple positions. Uh, he's got a chance to have a, a storybook career, really. Uh, and most of those non-drafted guys just don't. Maybe they get a cup of coffee and they're done, or maybe get a couple years and they're done. Uh, he's got a chance to play a lot of years in the major leagues. And it's, it's, it's a credit to him, really, because he's got the want to, the willpower. Uh, and he's, he, he is one of the most gracious and humble guys you'll meet. Well, James, it's an incredible story. We, we appreciate you sharing your perspective on it uh, with us. Good luck to, to, to Mike and the Rays the rest of the way in the playoffs. And, and thanks again. I'm just, I'm just so ecstatic for him. I'm proud of the guy he, for him and his family and uh, really happy for the organization, really sticking with him. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, James. We really appreciate it. Okay, Jim. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks very much to James Bonici for joining us here on the podcast. And Jim, uh, talk about just how difficult it is for a guy like Brasso, who goes without being drafted, you know, just to get signed is one thing, but then to actually be able to climb the ladder when all the odds are against him to make it to the big leagues and, and to become an, an impactful player. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the odds are long. I mean, look, there are guys who slipped through the cracks of the draft for whatever reason who, who do make it to the big leagues. Um, it, it does happen, but it's very difficult because basically – you don't get a chance to fail. Like if you struggle, you fail, you're probably done. And, and be honest, it's, it's probably going to be more true with the new minor league system, with fewer teams, fewer players and systems, you know, you, you've got to produce right away, you know, and, and, you know, even as much as, as James Benici, I mean, look, he, he liked Brasso's makeup. He thought he was a good small college player. Didn't really have any plus tools, you know, had a, had a, a nice senior season at kind of a, you know, I wouldn't even call it a mid-major program. I mean, the Horizon League is, is more smaller programs. Oakland has some players now and then. But even, you know, Benici said uh, you know, during the interview, I mean, part of the – he probably saw Mike Brasso more than anybody else because he he literally was from – he went to high school in Rochester Hills, Michigan. His mom worked at Oakland University. As a scout, he lived five minutes from the university. So if he, had, you know, for whatever reason had a game canceled and he wanted to go see something – well, you know, Oakland was five minutes away. Um, so, I mean, he just through geography, he got to see Brasso more than anybody else. So, but even then, I mean, he liked him as a player and how hard he worked. He, you know, he didn't bang the table. Hey, we got to draft this guy. You know, over 1,200 players get drafted. And the Rays, because they had injuries, you know, if, if the Rays didn't have an injury issue, maybe Brasso never gets signed. But they needed a guy who could play multiple infield positions in the Gulf Coast League and, you know, called their area guys. And, and, and James said, yeah, I, I've got a guy. Um, you know, I, I thought, you know, one of the cool parts of the story was he goes to sign him. Brasso, you know, they signed him for $1,000. Brasso's thrilled to get the chance. And he goes to sign him. 
And Brasso's like, okay, you know, am I, when am I, you know, am I flying out, you know, later today? And, and, and James is like, oh, I, I thought we'd fly you out tomorrow down to the GCL. And he's like, you want to go now? And they, they called the team's travel agent, got him on a plane that afternoon to get him down to Florida. But, you know, with Brasso, you know, he hit immediately. He, he was, you know, a little old for the Gulf Coast League at 22, but he hit immediately. He had a good spring training. And, you know, if he goes to minor league spring training and doesn't perform well, he might have gotten released then. But he has a good spring training, goes to Midwest League, earns a promotion to high class A's. First year continues to hit. Then the power starts to come the year after that. Then it really starts to come in 2019. And he winds up in the big leagues. But, you know, if he, if he let's say he goes to the Midwest League his first full year and he hits 230, he's probably not coming back in, in 2018. You know, he, he's probably done. And that's why it's just amazing. And, you know, I don't remember. We might not have talked about this during the interview. You know, the Rays are a good team. This isn't like, okay, you're on a 100-loss team and there's opportunities and they need a guy to fill in and you get a chance. I mean, he, you know, the Rays have been a playoff team the last two years. And, you know, he got called up, you know, and found a role on a playoff team. So just I, I, I love stories like this. Um, you know, I, I think with your non-drafted free agents, uh, you kind of have to be in the right place at the right time. And, and you have to, you know, yeah, you, you know, I, I think one thing that happens in common with almost every non-drafted free agent, you have to have strong makeup. It's guys who play the game hard, play the game the right way, that endear themselves to scouts, to when they need a guy to, to fill a hole to get that chance. And then you just have to produce or, you know, it's going to end. And it, to Brasso's credit, he produced, he kept getting better, you know, as we noted in the interview. He was an average runner at Oakland. He's better than that now. He, he's probably put on 20 pounds since he's been in pro ball, gotten stronger. His at-bats are better. His bat speed's better. He just made himself a, a better player as he continued to climb the ladder. So just an incredible story, and it culminates. Well, I shouldn't say culminates. It, you know, highlighted as of now with, with the big home run off of Aroldis Chapman. But I, I think there's more to come from this guy. He, he looks like a pretty good player. All right, let's stick to the draft here. The 2021 draft order is now set. We had wondered, you know, we were waiting to see how the order was going to be established, whether it was going to be just uh, based off of 2020 standings or if they were going to use some combination of 2019 and 2020. As it turns out, it's based just on the 2020 standings. First, guys, uh, your thoughts on that decision? Well, you know... I, I think whatever decision it was going to be, it was going to be imperfect. You know, we, we, we've talked about it a bit. I did an inbox question kind of looking at different possibilities. Uh, you know, it's a, it was a shortened season, so it's not 162 games. Uh, there was some thought of having some sort of hybrid where you combine 2019 and 2020. You know, that would in some ways penalize teams who surprisingly did well in 2020 you know, would you, if you doubled up 2020, would that make sense? But then that would happen even more. So I don't think there was a perfect way to do this. Um, maybe this was the simplest. There was going to be criticism, I think, no matter what. Uh, you know, uh, I think that if you had done some combination, uh, then people would complain that it wasn't taking into account teams that had improved, uh, you know, uh, or vice versa. So uh, maybe this is the best case scenario in what's been an utterly bizarre uh, year of baseball. Uh, so I, I think that's kind of where I would, would put it. It's it, it's not perfect, but I don't think that there's any scenario or anything that really would have would really correctly reflect where organizations are because right? the draft is supposed to be for. Uh, to help teams who had struggled get better. And that's why they pick at the top of the draft. So I, I don't know that any any draft order system would reflect that perfectly, given you know what just happened. I mean, we, I'm with you, Jonathan. I mean, there's so many things, even the, the my hated runner on second base rule in extra innings. I, I just file everything this year. 2020 is not a normal year. Like, it, you know, it's not close to normal. It's not going to be normal. Uh, so what can you do? I, I, I could see a case being made if you wanted to combine records or wait 2020 double and add it to 2019, but then you run into, you know, goofiness like the, you know, which, which Marlins team, you know, are you factoring in the Marlins team 
that advanced to the National League Division Series or the Marlins team that lost 105 games last year. And, you know, I, I have no problem with this. I mean, I guess my attitude kind of is, look, I mean, it's only a 60-game season, but the season was set up to be 60 games. They played the complete season. So let's use the standings. I, I think it's fine. So it's, uh, you know, is what it is. It's good teams know, and, and, and now we can go forward. And I think I, I haven't kept track of luxury tax calculations, but unless somebody went way over the luxury tax, the first round order won't change. There are no compensation picks, and you can't lose your top pick as free agent compensation. A quick rundown of the top five picks in the 2021 draft. The Pirates pick first, Rangers pick second. That will be their highest pick since 1974. Tigers picking high again. They're in the number three spot. Red Sox in the unusual uh, upper tier of the of the draft here, picking fourth overall. It'll be their highest selection since 1967. And the Orioles looking to add to uh, an ever-improving farm system, uh, picking toward the top again at number five. The entire uh, order is on MLB.com slash pipeline right now. You can check that out. All right, guys, let's wrap this up with uh, – a uh, question that was sent to us from, how did we decide this was pronounced? Scraxy. I think Scraxy. At Scraxy says, so we've seen how great Will Smith has been for the Dodgers. What about their other catching prospect in Kiebert Ruiz? Do we know if LA has any plans for him or do we see him on the move? Yeah. You know, I, I do our Dodgers stuff and, you know, we've talked to, you know, they also have one of the, the, the our top rated international guy from a couple of years ago is a catcher too, Diego Cartaya. And I, I would just, you know, it's not like teams look at this as you can only have one catcher. And in fact, most teams, I mean, you know, again, this wasn't a normal year, but I'd say in a typical 162 game season, I mean, most teams don't even have a guy start more than a hundred games behind the plate. So nothing wrong with having, you know, two good catchers, you know, maybe Austin Barnes should look over his shoulder a little bit. You know, that said, you know, even though Cabo Ruiz has advanced quickly, Homer in his first big league at bat this year, I think there's still some polish he needs in AAA. So, like, it, it's not like next season's going to begin and he's definitely going to be on the roster. But, I mean, he's got a chance to be a, a solid all-around guy. I think he might be a little bit better pure hitter than Will Smith. But Will Smith's got more power. Will Smith is a better receiver. But Cabo Ruiz, his power's developing, his receiving's improving. I, I think eventually you're going to see a, a timeshare with these two guys. And and look, if Will Smith continues to hit like he has, you know, which is you know made him one of the best, you know, most productive catchers in the big leagues. There's nothing wrong with letting these two guys split time. And, and once Universal DH is in, which seems like that's coming pretty soon, maybe Will Smith starts, you know, 80 games behind the plate and, and 40 at DH. And Cabo Ruiz starts 80 games behind the plate and and you're fortified there. So I, I don't think he's going anywhere. I mean, do you, Jonathan? I, I don't think so. I mean, you know, he's only 22, right? He turned 22 in, in July, uh, Ruiz did. Uh, you know, so I think there is still time. And I think what you said is right. And also, like, I don't know that they would do this, but, you know, it wasn't that long ago. It was 2018 when Will Smith was a catcher slash third baseman and played a lot of third base. Now, maybe he doesn't play third. Maybe, you know, you want to have him play first, depending on what the roster looks like. So I think there's some some positional flexibility, you know, options there where you could have both of them on the roster. You know, they've been very insistent on not trading Ruiz, uh, you know, over the last year or two. And Smith sort of leapfrogged over him in, in some ways uh, in terms of where we, you know, where they were thought of as prospects. So, you know, I, I think he probably stays put. I have a little nagging, like is Ruiz sort of a new version of Francisco Mejia. Uh, just a guy who was like seemingly thought of really, really highly for a very long time. And then has stagnated a, a, a little tiny bit. He's still young enough to figure it out, by the way. But, you know, that's the only thing that sort of is uh, tickling in the back of my brain. But I, I do I do. I think overall that they find a way to have both Smith and Ruiz on, on the roster, probably at some point in 2021. Guys, we talked earlier about the fact that we had not seen Tony Gonsolin in the postseason for the Dodgers, questioned whether maybe he's their game three starter. As we're recording the podcast, however, uh, our John Paul Morosi reporting that Gonsolin will now get the game to start as Clayton Kershaw has been scratched with back spasms. Well, so we got we we we, we knew we'd so we said you'd see him, so we we were apparently correct, I guess. Well, we didn't know how correct we were. 
Now, when you have pitching depth like the Dodgers do, uh, this is you know uh, this is where it comes into into play. You know, you know, is Tony Gonsolin, Clayton Kershaw? No, but to have a guy who's been that was that successful this year, uh, waiting in the wings to be able to come in and 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 start uh is is a, a really nice thing to count on and there aren't many organizations uh who who have the capability to replace an ace with a, a guy who has as good stuff as Gonsolin does all right that's going to do it for this edition of the pipeline podcast thanks to everyone for listening and stay tuned next week as we'll be right back at you Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion. Championship team.